Hello and welcome back to Listen Up A-Holes, the only Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that seems to go pretty well for a stretch and then at the end of the sentence says the wrong cranberry. I'm Joshua Unruh, superhero scholar from Pulp Diction Productions. And I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. Together we're working our way through the good, the bad, and the ugly of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So listen up, A-Holes. We're going to talk about Iron Man 3. So Lonnie, for us to look at our comics history for Iron Man 3, we have to actually kind of look backwards to the first Iron Man movie. Oh, yay! (laughs) You may recall that I mentioned the updated Iron Man origin that we took from a comic book series called Extremis. Yes. It would update it into, you know, Afghanistan, or at least the nebulous Middle East uh, instead of Mm -hmm. Vietnam, and would give us a kind of different, more modern transhumanist take on Tony Stark. But the bulk of that story, the, the part that dealt with Extremis, did not make it into the first movie. It made it into this one instead. So today we finally get to talk about the rest of that story where we actually do stuff with Extremis. Now, the thing is, the plot of that story gets filtered into Iron Man 3, but it is refracted pretty hard into something else. Okay, all right. So it's not a lot like what was in the comic books then? I think that largely the plot beats are, but the themes (laughs) going on underneath it are very different. The comic book was very transhumanism heavy, like hacking the brain, make your body better. What would it mean to be the next evolution of humanity? A lot of the lip service is paid to that in the movie, but that was really what the book was about. Right. Well, there's a lot of this, isn't there? Like the the super soldier thing seems to just come back over and over and over again. We got Captain America. We've got uh, the Incredible Hulk. Wasn't that kind of an attempt to do a super soldier thing? Yes. In the movies, definitely. In certain versions of the comic book, yes. But originally, this Mm -hmm. was all just disparate stuff that they figured that was a good thing to tie it together with. You know? Okay. Uh Um, And it is. It does work well. I mean, I mentioned they even managed to fold... Wolverine into that, uh, that he's weapon Mm -hmm. 10, not X and Captain America was weapon zero, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. but that did kind of that lens through which to see it with the super soldier stuff did come later, but that is definitely what extremists in the comic books is doing is we need a new super soldier. So what do we do about that? And rather than deal strictly with the physical form like Captain America did. Mm-hmm. This was, we are going to hack the brain so that it will remake the body. Okay. And you do get this in the movie. It's just, that's not what the movie is about, you know? And it's yeah. very much mm-hmm. what the comic book is about. By the end of it, Tony Stark is having to overcome the extremist soldiers by modifying extremists and injecting it into himself so that he and his armor can quite literally be one. And that's, Oh, like wow. he stores it in his bones, like wow. nano machines in his bones. So yeah, it's very different than than the direction they go in the movie, and you can see why because we'll talk about the themes of the movie. But it's just you know you get a lot of the beats and a lot of the characters at least in name, you know. But mm-hmm. the themes very very different. And again, I don't actually love Extremis as a story, but the themes are really interesting. And like I said, it does update Tony Stark into the modern era. So, 
The bits that survive into the movie are this kind of virus thing that rewires your brain so that you'll be hella strong, heal really fast, and also get crazy hot. (laughs) But really, the only other stuff that survives are these two characters, or at least their names, because they don't bear Mm -hmm. very much resemblance to one another, honestly. One of those two characters is Aldrich Killian, who in the comics... Mm -hmm is just a super smart guy who helped develop Extremis, but then he sold it to some terrorists and he kills himself. Okay. He's really uh-huh. the thing that kicks the story off. You know, he he leaves right. a note behind that says, hey, I sold this really dangerous thing to terrorists. Mm-hmm. I regret everything. Goodbye, cruel world. You know. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, obviously, for the movie, he's kind of a super crappy version of the Mandarin, which I will talk at length about as this episode progresses, and the founder of AIM. And we are going to talk about AIM much more because uh-huh. it has a very long storied history in the Marvel comics that Aldrich Killian does not. Okay. So the other person who survives, at least in name, is Maya Hansen. In the comics, she's the co-creator of Extremis, like along with Killian. And spoiler mm-hmm. warning, she turns out to be a secret co-conspirator in selling it to terrorists. But she doesn't regret anything. Okay, so. all right. So she's the real bad she's guy. She's the, yeah, yeah. Oh, they're co-bad guys, mm-hmm. but she has no remorse. So. Yes. <laughs> she's also an old friend of Tony Stark's and not a one-night stand. They, they mm-hmm. were in school together. And, you know, so she calls him for help with the situation that Killian kicks off by killing himself. So. Okay. Now, AIM. That's all the boring stuff because yes. those people are boring. <laughs> but AIM is fantastic. Okay. A terrorist organization made up of scientists. Wow. Advanced Idea Mechanics first appears in Strange Tales number 146 in 1966, created by, sing it along with me, friends, Stanley and Jack Kirby. <laughs> AIM starts out as a super science division of an organization that is seriously called THEM, which is a two-layer joke at the expense of spy fiction from the time. Uh-huh. Later, we discover that THEM is actually the post-World War II incarnation of HYDRA. AIM breaks okay. away from HYDRA and becomes super science terrorists for hire, which allow any half-baked supervillain wannabe with a decent pile of cash to get his hands on some high-tech weapons and a gimmick. All right. (laughs) And for my money, it's in this way that they are a crucial aspect of superhero universe ecology. Yeah, because basically anybody with money can become a supervillain now because we've got this this kind of conflict engine there. Right. As far as I'm concerned, we need low rent hoods with laser guns Mm -hmm. and AIM makes that possible. All right. And you you do get some of this with the Vulture and Spider-Man Homecoming. We'll talk about that. But again, that's so late in the game that I'm just like, but what about the people who want to rob banks with freeze rays? Right. This is a really big deal. Uh, <laughs> Ames' most famous creation is MODOK. We'll talk more about him in just a minute. Mm-hmm. Especially we will talk about him. Well, we'll talk about him for two reasons. One it's going to blow your mind. And secondly, okay. MODOK is Iron Man 3's greatest unrealized potential. Okay. Most recently, an X-Man turned Avenger named Roberto Sunspot DaCosta undertook a hostile takeover of AIM and retooled them as Avengers Idea Mechanics. 
All right. So is is he making them good guys? Then? Yes. He basically just bought so them out because he's incredibly rich. Okay. And said, hey, guess what, gang? Now you're working for the Avengers. <laughs> All right. Later, DaCosta merged AIM with the U.S. government and created American intelligence mechanics, which became the technological backing for the U.S. Avengers. Okay. We have mentioned the U.S. Avengers before because the Red Hulk and his mustache are in it. Okay. Yeah, so. Okay. So the U.S. Avengers, do we have Avengers from other countries is that why we have to distinguish that they are u.s avengers these are the avengers who are working directly with the united states military and intelligence forces oh yeah that's where that comes Mm -hmm. from and after that they stop making sense because red hulk and his mustache and squirrel girl are on the same team (laughs) and i love it but what (laughs) all right friends it's time for modok okay Rather than a lame-ass version of the Mandarin that hid behind a much more interesting but ultimately wasted version of the Mandarin, should have been Modok. If this movie was going to position Killian as the creator of AIM, there is no reason in the world that he shouldn't have been the mobile organism designed only for killing. So that's what Modok stands for? That is what Modok stands for. <laughs> well, I like that. I like that understanding and clarity of purpose, though. I like that. All right. Oh, it's beautiful. I, I mean, yeah, Modoc is a straight line thinker. Okay. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about him, and then I'm going to mm-hmm. ask you to click this link and react in real time to what Modoc <laughs> actually looks like. There is a link, just for everybody listening. There is a link in the show notes that Joshua put in there, along with a message, all caps. Lonnie, do not click this link until I tell you. So I am really holding myself back. I am dying to click this link. I wanted everybody to hear your reaction to Modoc, but <laughs> okay. let me prep you just a little. Sure. George Tarkleton was once a low-level AIM technician with no imagination and no prospects. <laughs> and that is why the Scientist Supreme decided to use him as an experiment to create a living supercomputer. Mm-hmm. Tarkleton's mind and body were subjected to mutagenic experiments that forced his head and brain to grow to gargantuan proportions while his body withered. Wow. When finished, Tarkleton had become a freak of nature with psionic powers, vast computing ability, and a body so shrunken and weak that he gets around in a rocket-powered hover chair. Wow. He also took issue with the Scientist Supreme experimenting on him, murdered the Scientist Supreme, and immediately took over AIM. Please click the link. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my. Okay. Well, this picture is going to be in the show notes. You're damn right it is. Wow. Wow. He looks like a a baby with a big head. Yes. Yes. I mean, now, the head is gargantuan because, like, Captain America is in this picture for some perspective. The deal is his brain evolved to this point where he's Mm -hmm. mostly brain and his body is giving out. And the only way he can get around is in this hover chair, which also is full of missiles and lasers and its own stuff. So he has really strong psionic abilities. Like he can shoot brain lasers and put up force fields that can withstand nuclear bombs. Wow. But he can't take himself to the bathroom unless he has a hover chair. Oh, my God. And the dialogue on this page. I am Modoc. Once I was a mere human guinea pig for the scientists of AIM, but they did their job too well. And now I am their master. I, I love that. <laughs> Me too. 
Oh my god. <laughs> now, boring or wasted villains is probably the second largest sin of Iron Man 3, but uh, not getting yeah. Guy Pierce as a giant head in a rocket car shooting <laughs> laser beams from his forehead is by far the greatest sin. Yes, no, that is that is absolutely something that we are missing in this that would have made this so much more fun. Okay, I'm so glad you agree. No, that is that is such a missed opportunity. I mean, my God. I mean, I don't need things to be just like they are in the comics, right? Mm-hmm. But And we're going to talk about the Mandarin and how I feel there's some missed opportunity there also. But, yeah. but the fact that you had AIM and MODOK didn't show up. And think about Guy Pierce could have been that guy. Oh, my God. Right? That would have been fascinating. Yes, he would have been an amazing MODOK. And you could do that without making it so patently ridiculous. I mean, you could dial it down a little bit, but make it grotesque still and have that be like this creepy thing. And then you've got this guy, you know, whose just entire life and identity is taken over by as much things he did as things that were done to him. I mean, that could be a really interesting villain. Well, think about it, too. He's kind of a mess at the beginning Mm -hmm. of the movie. Like, they're never clear, but he has some, like, physical disabilities, you know, and is not... You know, traditionally attractive. He's got something wrong with his teeth. He's hobbling mm-hmm. around. Yeah. Imagine if, rather than having it done to him, like it like happened to Modoc in the comics, mm-hmm. this is just him wanting to make himself the uttermost man, and he oh, accidentally sure. overdoes it and becomes a mobile organism designed only for killing. Wow. <laughs> I like the mobile organism designed only for killing. Well, he's got a hover chair, so. Right. Know. No, he's definitely mobile. I just I think that that's something that you would kind of presume that, you know, most things would be mobile. He renamed himself uh, a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, mm-hmm. He was still MODOK when the Scientist Supreme created him, but it was with a C because he was designed only for computing. Like he was supposed to be a living supercomputer. And so oh. the idea that you would have a mobile supercomputer that is also a yeah. living being. Yeah, that gives you a little more context for the mobile part, but. That's a little, that's a little wild. Yeah. So, okay. Now that's fun. We kind of have to talk about the Mandarin, which is both some missed opportunities for this movie, but also kind of us having to own how we've been awful in our past. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if you were wondering if there were any Iron Man villains that age even worse than a Red Menace, (laughs) the answer is yes. There's one that's a Yellow Peril. Oh God. For those of you who may not know... Yellow Peril is a racist caricature of the mysterious Orient that was perpetrated by the Western world as they, you know, needed to vilify and hate this other. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean to be a big downer, but that is just facts. Like, we did yeah. this for a long time. Yeah. Now, the two biggest names in genre fiction when it comes to Yellow Perils, mm-hmm. other than the Mandarin, Ming the Merciless from Flash Gordon. Mm-hmm. And Sax Romer's criminal mastermind, Dr. Fu Manchu. Yeah. Are you familiar with either one of these? I, I will say that I have heard Fu Manchu, but I have never known anything about it other than the name. The name kind of, you know, floats around in, right. the, uh, in the zeitgeist there, but I don't know anything about either one. Well, he's a super intelligent criminal mastermind from the mysterious Orient. 
Mm-hmm. Hear the air quotes. We should stop yes. calling it that. But it's th- this yellow peril stuff. It's all yeah. wrapped up in that, right? And yeah. he is just that, like, scary other who is trying to overthrow the Western world and is constantly thwarted by the heroes of this series of books, which are mostly MI6 agents, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were a series of pulp novels. And then, of course, okay. Ming the Merciless is so much that caricature that he's not even human. Now, I know that's a science fiction story, but the fact yeah. that he's, like, cold-blooded and reptilian mm-hmm. is, you know, folded into that. So, Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. So the Mandarin shows up in 1964 and is just a full bore racist caricature. Yeah. But before we pat ourselves on the back too hard and talk about how the Yellow Peril was that far back in the past, I'd like to remind everybody that Michael Crichton published Rising Sun in 1992 and had a big motion picture release the following year with Sean Connery and Wesley Snipes. So yeah, Mm -hmm. Yellow Peril as recently as me in high school. Yeah, yeah. Not great. um Americans don't let go of their racist caricatures very easily. No, we hang on to them. Um, We hang on to them. Yeah. yeah. Now, as big a caricature as he is, they eventually build this really interesting character out of the Mandarin. He is a direct descendant of Genghis Khan through his father, who was a rich man in pre-revolution China. His mother is an English noblewoman. And that's actually more noteworthy, less for a character reason and more because one of the biggest parts of Yellow Peril was the idea that foreigners were going to, again, note my air quotes, ruin yes. women by impregnating them. Oh, God. This is also Dracula. Mm-hmm. He's not quite as far east, but it's the same thing. It's mm-hmm. he's, not a, he's not a sex monster. He <laughs> is a ruin the empire monster. And that's why it's notable that she, his mother was an English noblewoman. Right. Air right. quotes ruined by the this Chinese. Oh, whatever. God. Yeah. So he's raised by a bitter and angry aunt mm-hmm. who spends the entire family fortune on training him in martial arts and the sciences. Mm-hmm. He is a genius on par with Tony Stark. Okay. In fact, to escape conflict with the communist government of China, he retreats to the Forbidden Valley of Spirits, where he finds a crashed spaceship with the skeleton of a giant dragon-like alien from Maklu 4. Okay. Now, we know that because there is another Makluan stranded on Earth who looks like a giant dragon, and they call him Fin Fang Foom because we're kind of racist about Chinese things, right? Oh, my God. But where the genius comes in is the man who would be called the Mandarin spends years adapting the propulsion system from that ship into 10 Uh rings, which give him 10 different superpowers. Okay. Now, the 10 rings, though, that's the terrorist group, right? Yes. In the first movie, that was the terrorist organization that kidnapped Tony Stark and all that stuff. And that's why when I heard that, I was like, well, obviously, their boss is the Mandarin. And again, we'll get more into this as we go, but kind of like the absence of Modoc, I feel like the Mandarin is not as great as I would like him to be in this movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because before this movie, I was saying, there's no way to crack this problem. There is no way to make the Mandarin on screen in a way that isn't awful. Mm-hmm. And then they did it. And then they threw it away. Right. <laughs> I don't love it. Well, yeah. more on that. Rocks on. Roxon Oil. Now, I'm mentioning them here because they make a big deal of the oil tanker at the end, being the MCU version of the Exxon Valdez. Mm -hmm. 
Roxxon was created in 1974 to be a stand-in for basically any evil energy corporation, which is why it is similarly named but legally distinct from Exxon. Right. <laughs> but I do bring it up, not so much because it's a big deal in this movie, but to show you the kind of ongoing world building. I know it'll be a thing on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. It's mm-hmm. been a thing on Peggy Carter. And a couple of the Netflix shows even mm-hmm. reference it. Last couple of things, some people who wear armor. Yes. That we should talk about. Iron Patriot. Mm-hmm. Okay, hang with me. (laughs) Because the look of Iron Patriot makes so much sense for War Machine, I can't believe nobody thought of doing it before this movie. Uh Uh-huh. But the source of that look is kind of complicated. There's a man named Norman Osborn who has plagued the life of Peter Parker since he was a teenager. Mm -hmm. Norman has done so both as an industrialist and a father to Peter's best friend. But he's also terrorized Peter's friends and family in costume as the Green Goblin. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Through a series of machinations, Osborne replaces Tony Stark as Secretary of Defense, mm-hmm. disbands S.H.I.E.L.D. and rebrands it as Hammer, and then disassembles the Avengers so he can put a bunch of supervillains in their costumes and create the Dark Avengers. Uh-huh. Ares replaces Thor. They get the current Venom to stand in for Spider-Man. Bullseye comes in for Hawkeye. Moonstone is Ms. Marvel. That kind of thing. Uh-huh. Their leader was Norman himself. In a suit of armor patterned after Iron Man, but painted in the Stars and Stripes. Mm -hmm. He called himself the Iron Patriot. Okay. He's replacing both Tony and Steve in this new Avengers, right? That was the theory. Right. Okay. Now, eventually, Tony, Steve, and Thor have enough of it. And they sort them all out. And it doesn't really matter for the purposes of Iron Patriot, but that's where Iron Patriot gets his start in the comics. Wow. Okay, so he's a bad guy, though. But we're taking Iron Patriot and turning War Machine into that. Yes. And I'm a little fuzzy on exactly the timing, but Rhodey did wear a version of the Iron Patriot outfit after this stuff with Osborne. But Osborne did a lot of really horrible things, and so the brand was kind of jacked. Yeah. Okay. But it makes so much more sense than this featureless gray armor that we call war machine like man america are you sure yeah can't do better than that (laughs) one other armored person worth discussing is rescue Mm -hmm. i think that you and i share a disappointment in the fact that pepper gets powers and then loses them off screen yes and immediately with no real discussion but yeah we'll talk about that we'll get to it (laughs) but i bring it up i bring up rescue because of that because Mm -hmm. pepper looked great in the heartbreaker armor at the beginning Mm-hmm. And it made me kind of wonder, as the movie progressed, if she was going to get rescue armor. There was a terrorist attack orchestrated by Ezekiel Stain, son of uh-huh. Obadiah, mm-hmm. that wounded Pepper severely. And Tony saved her by putting a magnet in her chest, kind of like the oh. one he had to wear way back in the day. Yeah. She gets some other cybernetic upgrades and eventually a full suit of armor that's geared more towards like help and rescue than being a one-woman weapon. Uh Uh-huh. Eventually, she lost it because girls can't have nice things in the Marvel Universe. But for a while, (laughs) she was an armored hero with a really different feel and look than Rhodey or Tony. Like, she still looked like she came out of the, you know, Stark manufacturing. There was a lot of design elements that were shared. But it was Mm -hmm. both feminized and, like I say, directed more towards saving people than blowing stuff up. Because the woman must always be nurturing, of course. (laughs) Well, yes, that's obviously mixed in there. But considering Mm -hmm. that Tony starts out as a weapons manufacturer and Mm Rhodey is literally rolling around in something called War Machine, (laughs) it was kind of cool to see a completely different take. It's nice to have something complement that. Sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that's largely the comic book history at this point. Like, we've done all of our hard world building for Tony Stark, so yeah. I'm I'm done until later when I complain more about the absence of Modoc and the Mandarin that we got. Right, right. Well, we're definitely going to do that. But first, let me go into the production history. Now that phase one of the Marvel Cinematic Universe story has finished, with most of our major players introduced, we've got the Avengers assembled. We're on to phase two, which includes six more movies, starting with Iron Man 3. Six more movies and a ton of TV shows. We're going to talk about that, definitely. (laughs) We'll get there. Oh, will yes, we get there? Absolutely. We are ramping things up. Iron Man 3 continues this series without director John Favreau, who decided not to return as director for Iron Man 3, but he did return to play Happy Hogan. So we at least got to see him again, which was nice, although he was in a hospital bed for most of that time. Yeah, but when he wasn't, 90s yeah. Happy Hogan was fantastic. 90s Happy Hogan with that that John Travolta and Pulp Fiction haircut. Yep. Which I thought was really fun. <laughs> This awful goatee and a bolo tie. He was unafraid of fashion. Happy Hogan is bold when it comes to fashion. I like that. I like that. I think that's cool. Um, So stepping in as director and co-writer on this is Shane Black. Black has a long resume in action movies, starting with the Lethal Weapons series, which launched in 1987, and up through The Last Boy Scout, The Long Kiss Goodnight, and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which starred Robert Downey Jr. And if you haven't seen it, you should totally see it. I love Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. (laughs) I I would say the same thing about Lethal Weapon, Last yeah. Boy Scout, and The Long Kiss Goodnight. Those They're are all, all really good. good movies. Yeah. They're very good. Shane Black has some actual like writing chops. He's, he's, he's good. Um, but given the bad relationships that Marvel has had with directors, it's worth checking in to find out how this relationship worked out. Uh, since Iron Man 3, Shane Black has been credited on two Marvel Lego video games, um, but nothing else with Marvel. So once again, Marvel appears to be kind of the the bad boyfriend, one night stand, <laughs> love them and drive them crazy until they leave you sort of guy. So, um, Black has actually referred to Marvel Studios a couple of times as quote unquote, the machine, which sounds like an awesome supervillain name, but the reference was used in an affectionate context. So I'm presuming that it was it was nicely meant um, and may not have anything to do with whether or not he was going to return to the franchise um, black actually did report getting death threats over iron man 3 so it is understandable why he wouldn't want to come back but i mean death threats that's insane fandom has some problems yeah. right now mm-hmm. that is not the purview of this particular podcast but for real toxic fandom is just a terrifying thing and friends yeah. I'm going to complain a lot about the thing that got him death threats, mm-hmm. but I never sent him a death threat, nor do I endorse violence against the man. No, it's crazy. It's crazy. And toxic fandom absolutely is a thing. And that is a, a whole discussion <laughs> for another time. Maybe one day we'll do a, a, a thing just on toxic fandom because it is it is kind of um, this this crazy thing that is taking over um, elements of a lot of different fandoms that I've seen. And it is really crazy. But moving on from that complete insanity that he would get death threats over this movie, you know, uh, co-writing this movie with Black is Drew Pierce. And 
his name is spelled the same as Guy Pierce, but my research didn't dig up any relation, so I'm presuming that it's just a coincidence. Um, but he also, Drew Pierce also wrote the Marvel one-shot All Hail the King, which was released on the Thor 2 The Dark World DVD. Uh, they have a, a bunch of these one-shots that they kind of threw around, these little short um, videos that they did. Um, Pierce also wrote a screenplay for a movie version of Runaways. That didn't happen. Runaways has since gone to Hulu as a TV series with Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage from the OC show running. Um, I haven't watched that yet, um, but I've heard middling things about it. <laughs> I've watched a little and I like what I've seen. The, the little bit I've seen is very good. Yeah, I read some of those comics and I thought they were pretty good. Pierce has not shown up writing that show, um, and it appears that Marvel did not develop a long-standing relationship with Drew Pierce either. So we are running through our creative teams like tissue paper at this point. Um, conceptually, Pierce and Black have both said that they saw Iron Man 3 as kind of a grittier, more real-world story, uh, which by Marvel standards basically means no magic, no flying into outer space, keeping everything somewhat grounded, which I thought was really an interesting place to go, especially after having last seen you know tony stark in the avengers mm -hmm. as he flies into space and saves the world you know um shane black said of the writing process the way to go about doing a part three is to find a way that the first two weren't done yet you have to find a way to make sure that the story that's emerging is still ongoing and by the time you finish three will be something resembling the culmination of a trilogy it's about how has the story not yet been completely told and I thought that was a really interesting quote when you're looking at the way that this movie was done, you know, um, because they did go to a place in Iron Man 3 that they hadn't gone with the other movies. And yet it does kind of complete um, one of the things we're going to talk about is this identity three beat we have between these three movies that we move Tony through this arc that I actually really quite like. It's one of the things that I, I really like about all three of these movies together. And of course, that comes back to the identity story, which I love. And we're going to talk about that when we get to talking about the movie. But an interesting tidbit about this movie, Maya Hansen, played by Rebecca Hall, was supposed to be the main antagonist of the movie. Black has said that Marvel nixed that idea because they didn't want a female villain because it would hurt the merchandising of action figures. So they made Killian Aldrich the bad guy. And in the end, it didn't matter because the only villain action figure they made was actually the Mandarin, which wasn't actually the villain. So unpack that. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I've got opinions about all of that. Yeah. I mean, what the hell, right? It is weird that we are still, I mean, I have a 10 year old boy who is very <laughs> interested in all the Marvel toys when they come out. Yeah. And it is still a thing that we are just barely starting to fight our way out of that boys don't want to play with action figures that are girls and that girls right. don't want to play in action figures at all. It's crazy mm -hmm. and not yeah. true. No. But it's a thing that toy makers or at least toy marketers believe 100%. They just believe it. And the reason why, you know, boys aren't playing with it because those toys aren't available because we don't have it, you know? Right, exactly. And girls would love to play with action figures. Like, there's absolutely no reason for any of this. And we really need to get past it. And the idea that they would nix making Maya Hansen into a really interesting and complicated villain for this movie because of merchandising. I feel yeah. like this movie yeah. could have used a really interesting villain. 
It, it could have used one. We had three or four villains, none of which really added up to anything. But we are going to talk about that in a minute. I'm sorry. I, I just keep <laughs> casting shade as we go. I apologize. No, no, no. I do, too. I'm anxious to get to that discussion. But I want to finish <laughs> all of this stuff first, and then we will get into that. Now, Iron Man 3 had a budget of $200 million, which was the second highest Marvel budget at that time. And it brought in an astounding $1.2 billion, almost tripling the haul from Iron Man 1. One, which had been the biggest solo hero performer for Marvel so far. Iron Man 3 is the third highest grossing Marvel movie to date, tracking just a smidge behind the Avengers and Avengers Age of Ultron, and remains the only solo hero Marvel movie to crack a billion dollars in profit. But Black Panther, as of this recording, by the time this recording is aired, this may be different, but right now is is really breathing down the neck of a billion dollars, and I think is definitely going to crack it by the time this episode goes to air. So, um, so I think that that's going to be really interesting to see how much Black Panther just kills all of the Marvel records to date. I think it probably will. Yeah, I think Black Panther has raised all kinds of bars as far as the MCU is concerned. Oh, every single kind of bar, including a lot of the bars that we don't clear in this movie that we're going to talk about. Um, As far as critical and fan response, um, the IMDB ratings, which is anybody can can contribute to those, has Iron Man in this trilogy, Iron Man at 7.9, Iron Man 2 is 7.0, this is on a 10-point scale, and Iron Man 3 is at 7.2. So Iron Man 2 is the least liked, Iron Man is the favorite, and Iron Man 3 is just a little bit better than Iron Man 2 as far as the fans are concerned. Um, Rotten Tomatoes, which uh, goes by critical scores, these are people who are writing professionally for you know various media outlets, um, has Iron Man 4 at 94%, um, Iron Man 2 at 73%, and Iron Man 3 at 80%. So it's the same basic distribution, um, but probably a little bit higher for Iron Man 3 from a critical um, view than from a fan view. So I find that really interesting as we move into talking about this movie. Where do you want to start? (laughs) Well, you do love the identity story and I I love watching that stuff get dealt with through your eyes, right? Because I, being a superhero guy, feel like identity is important in all kinds of different ways. Mm -hmm. But hearing you talk about it is fantastic and fascinating to me so let's let's start with that because it is also probably the strongest thing going on in this movie I think the identity stories are the strongest things happening in all of the Iron Man movies. Um, Mm -hmm. And I find it fascinating whenever I see that identity kind of rev up again. And because so many times, and we're going to talk about, especially in this movie, there's so many things that get tossed into the air and then they don't land. It's like watching a juggler just pick up a bunch of balls and throw them and he never catches any of the other ones. He's just constantly pulling from a basket and throwing them in the air. Oh, it's like watching me juggle. Got it. Yes, or, or me. Yes, exactly. Um, So I find it really interesting. We kind of dance around the identity story a lot in this movie, and we get so close to it being so good, and then we kind of drop that ball a little bit. Um, We start in the beginning, of course, with Tony's voiceover, because Shane Black has never met a voiceover he didn't love. We'll talk about that. (laughs) Or basically, I'll just say I hate voiceover. I I put up with it for Shane Black, Um, but it's, it's not great, and I don't particularly care for the way that it's dealt with in this movie but we start with tony talking about this which um with his voiceover in the beginning these days i'm a changed man 46 i'm different now i'm well 40s 
You know who I am. And that's how we've danced through all of these movies, right? It is always some variation of I am Iron Man. At the end of the first movie, he claims it. He says, I am Iron Man. In the second movie, it's I am the suit. The suit is me. The suit is Iron Man and I am Iron Man. So he's claiming this sort of dual identity. And then in this movie, he sheds the suit and his armor becomes internal. He like internalizes this idea of what Iron Man is, sort of what Iron Man represents. And that becomes a part of him internally, which I think is a really interesting kind of three movie, three beat progression of this identity story, which I really like. We see in the beginning, he keeps making the suits, right? And it's almost become a shame thing. He's hiding it, right? You know, somebody's alcoholic if they hide their drinking, you know, he's hiding his suit making, right? Um, He tells Pepper he's on Mark 15, but when we see it says Mark 42, um, the suits are not helping him feel any safer. He is rushing through this production of all of these suits, making new prototypes, trying to feel safer, but he's having these anxiety attacks and PTSD from the events of New York, which I really love. I love that we are seeing the consequence of what happened in Avengers moving into this story and kind of setting us up for this phase in Tony's story. I really love that that internal struggle, that vulnerability that we have with him. I mean, Tony's Tony's war with his own vulnerability is essentially at the core of every Iron Man movie. But this is where it really comes out. It's all completely surfaced now. And it's at the act two turn when he slams into Rose Hill, Tennessee, and he has just that one suit. It's that prototype. It's that Mark 42. It's not quite working. And even that it's trashed because he, you know, landed in the middle of a field. And from that point forward, he really has to pursue this fight just as himself, you know, and he gets Harley's help. He holds up pretty well. Then we get into the act three turn where Harley reminds Tony who he is in the middle of a panic attack by saying, You're a mechanic, right? Right. You said so. Yes, I did. Why don't you just build something? At this moment, we have this sudden turn. Tony's in the middle of a panic attack. Harley reminds him that he's a mechanic. And all of a sudden, he internalizes Iron Man. It happens so fast that you can you can miss it if you're not really looking for it. All of a sudden he's in Home Depot. He's buying all this stuff. He's making an Iron Man suit with a sweatshirt hoodie, you know? Right. Um, yes. It's kind of fascinating what happens there, how quickly he internalizes that. Um, so he makes the suit out of all that stuff. It's a hoodie suit. There's no armor. It's all gadgetry. And he manages to crash into the Mandarin compound with just that, you know, Um, he manages to be Iron Man without the iron suit, you know, and the suits end up coming back and helping in the climax. But mostly throughout this movie, Tony is fighting outside of the suit and he's still managing to win. So processing him through all of this until we get to the end where again, we've got another voiceover and we hear Tony say, you can take away my house all my tricks and toys. One thing you can't take away. I am Iron Man. So it's a nice contrast here 
that we have with him claiming his identity, which is something that he's been doing throughout all of these movies. And finally, he's internalized Iron Man. Iron Man started as a way for him to put external armor around himself and protect himself from his own vulnerability. And now he's bringing Iron Man inside himself with that vulnerability in this three beat throughout the movies. I kind of love it. And then we have that contrast with Killian claiming his identity in a way that doesn't work at all, that doesn't make any sense, where he's just screaming, I am the Mandarin, right before, you know, Pepper knocks him out with a big pipe. So I find that kind of interesting how we sort of pull in this identity story. We don't pull it in. We we whisper at this identity story. We nod at this identity story for Killian, who has absolutely nothing that makes any sense, you know. But I think that the identity progression for um, for Tony throughout these movies and, you know, supplemented with what happened in the Avengers is actually really good. But we, but we still kind of miss it a little bit. We, we switch him so fast, you know, from one place to the other um, that it all feels like a miss and that I am the Mandarin thing, which is a reflection of that, is completely unearned. I don't know. What did you think about all of that? I love the identity three beat for Tony mm-hmm. Stark. Owning that he is Iron Man and then the stuff with the suit is me and I'm the suit. And then coming home to this where, like you say, he internalizes it to the point mm-hmm. where he can be Iron Man on a budget. Yes, know? right. Which is great. All of that is great. And then it just gets completely undermined by the last half hour of this movie. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've, we have figured out that we can be Iron Man without a suit of armor. And so mm-hmm. clearly, for the big climax, we need to have 42 suits of armor flying around. Exactly. What? Well, I mean, they're there, but none of them, whenever he puts it on, whenever he gets inside a suit, it gets immediately trashed. Right. Now, I'm going to say I don't like to be the sort of fanboy nitpicker of things. Oh, that's those okay. That's why we're here. <laughs> turn to tinfoil at the end yes. of that movie. Mm-hmm. Somebody sneezed on one and it fell apart. <laughs> it's, it's a little... There. Okay, so... Because I like the internalizing of Iron Man so much, this is why this bothers me. Yeah. All of a sudden, we have 42 suits of armor. Yes. They are all made out of tissue paper. Mm-hmm. Jarvis mm-hmm. is running all of them. Yeah. No, Jarvis In the is. end of this movie, Tony Stark is superfluous to Iron Man rather than having internalized it. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's a weird choice. I don't understand how that's supposed to support this theme of I am Iron Man and I've internalized it, it's really kind of a mess. Right. Because, I mean, the whole thing is, like, I like the fact that every time a suit, you know, every time he tries to put on a suit in this movie, it just, it gets disintegrated. It's just, like, he can't do it. He has to, you know, he has to find Iron Man within himself. Look inside, Tony. You had the answer there all along, you know. Um, (laughs) And and so we kind of get into that without it being that, terrible kind of you know message from his dad that we had in Iron Man 2 um so I mean I kind of like that but you're right like we've got all of these suits flying all over the place um you know Jarvis is completely running that show um and Jarvis as an AI also is not believable Jarvis has human responses Jarvis has a sense of humor Jarvis Mm -hmm. like it's it's a little bit ridiculous you know the way that that Jarvis is actually you know not an AI he's he's like a human intelligence within all of these suits you know Jarvis is a wonderful thing that is really fun 
as long as you don't make me look too closely at it. If you don't, if you don't think too hard. Right. Yeah, I mean, I love Jarvis. I yes. love Jarvis. I love everything. I love the dialogue. I love the character. I love everything. But if you think about it at all, you know, um, it, it does kind of take away from the idea that Tony is Iron Man because really Jarvis is Iron Man. <laughs> you know, in the end of the movie, he is forty-seven Iron Man. He is forty exactly, and he's just flying all over the place. You know, shooting people, grabbing Rhodey, and taking him off. I mean, it's just, um, it's it's kind of insane. It does go a little bit too far. It does work against this really nice identity story that mm -hmm. we have if we had had tony in that final climax having to do battle with just his intellect i mean here is the guy who built an iron man suit in a cave with a box of scraps and it wasn't about the iron man suit it was about his capability and what he's capable of doing and i wanted to see that and i think that we saw that a little bit with the with the hoodie suit mm -hmm. you know Definitely. i am hoodie man right you know well, and even earlier with the microwave yeah. bomb. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, he is able to think on his feet. He's able to fight. You know, he's able to take care of things without the suit. And so for him to be able to handle this climax without that assistance, I think would have been really nice and and the you know i but you know we want in an action sequence in marvel we have to dial it to 11 right it has to be explosions it has to be you know wild superhero powers dialed up you know and so the idea that we could have had a, an entire climax using just like tony using what was on the oil rig you know, being able to find a way to to use what he had as weapons and fight Killian Aldrich that way, I would have really loved to have seen that. And that would have kind of, you know, cemented that message of I am Iron Man. Iron Man is inside of me. Iron Man is what I am capable of doing, you know, and that would have like spoken to calming down his PTSD as well. Although PTSD is a very complicated, you know, psychological um, experience for a lot of people. We have a lot of people who are suffering from PTSD and to be able to, to kind of like whisk it away and be like, no, he's fine now, you know, would be kind of undermining that. Although we do that to a certain extent anyway, we're not going to seriously deal with PTSD, you know, as a condition in this movie. Well, spoiler warning, the rest of the MCU is going to forget that this movie happened almost immediately. Yeah. Yeah. And part of um, that is just not dealing with the not dealing with the PTSD, which I'll circle back to for just a second. You and I kind of hit on something that has really been speaking to me about Tony Stark, which is he never has any repercussions. He never yes. has any fallout. No consequence. Finally, he has a consequence. Yes. Yes. And then which the rest of the larger MCU just forgets about it. And it's like, yeah. ugh, I know. Me. But that's the whole thing, though, that like this is what I love about Iron Man 3 is that this is the movie where we really explore that internal space with him. Yes, where definitely. Where we go into that internal darkness. This is the movie where we deal with him as a human person, you know, where he is struggling with the events that have happened to him. And I love that we do that. And then I hate that we sell it out. You yes. Know? Yeah. Um, so that's the thing that that. You know, I mean, I both love and and am really so disappointed by this movie in so many ways. I actually think that we probably could have had our cake and eaten it too with a little uh -huh. more effort. Yeah. Like, imagine if he had sort of taken these 47 suits and made like one Frankenstein's monster suit. 
Yeah. Not that's yeah. huge, but it's like all these ideas crammed together and it, and it only kind of works. But he's like jury rigging it on the fly because right. now that's a thing he can do. Jarvis could never do. Right. 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 This, exactly. Or imagine if he goes in and deals with it without the armor, but has the armors as a complete diversion. Like nobody even knows he's there out of the armor. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And he's getting the job done. And we still get to have our big stupid set piece. But in a way that doesn't undermine the themes of the entire movie. Absolutely. I mean, there are definitely ways to do that. Um, But the way it is, it's it's so much great potential and then kind of thrown away. Um, And which gives me a segue to the next topic of discussion. (laughs) The women. We always have to talk about the women, right? Because... In the Marvel movies so far, although I will say it's going to get better. <laughs> it does get better as we move. It's going to be a minute before we get to do the deep dive, obviously. But, I mean, we mentioned Black Panther raising all kinds of bars. <laughs> oh, oh man. Yes, Black Panther is the absolute antidote to all of the things we're going to be talking about with women in the MCU. As we move forward, inching ever closer to talking about Black Panther on a deep dive episode, which I'm so looking forward to. But we have essentially two women in this um, in this movie. And I will say I am grateful that neither one of them is wearing a decorative arc reactor between her boobs. So that's a step up. We don't have any dancers. We don't have any strippers. So we we're do moving. hang a lampshade on mm-hmm. Pepper's sports bra, though. Oh, yeah. No, we do that. It's I'm sorry it's to burst great. your bubble. It's, it's not great. You know, I'm trying to look for a bright side, but it's not great. I'm just wrecking so, it. Just yeah. wrecking it. No, it's I'm, I'm just trying. I'm trying to find the bright side. OK, so we have Maya Hansen, right, who I think is interesting. We open up with, of course, the classic Marvel prologue, because apparently we cannot live without a Marvel prologue. <laughs> um, and uh, so we have Maya Hansen. We have her at, you know, New Year's. She's hanging out with Tony. The two of them are having, you know, a little relationship. She's working with these plants that, you know, catch on fire and whatever and doing some really interesting work with that. Um, but she's also, you know, Tony's girlfriend at this point. So she's defined by that relationship as well. We see a little bit of Aldrich Killian kind of in that. Um, but Maya, we have at least, you know, she's a scientist. She's smart. She is, um, you know, working kind of at Tony's level, which I really like. I like mm-hmm. that he's, you know, with a woman who is actually, uh, you know, actually has like the intellect and all of these these other things that could make you understand why he would, you know, spend that time, why he wanted yes. to be with that woman. As, aside from the way that Tony has traditionally treated women, which is his objects and and, you know, possessions and, and that kind of thing and decoration, definitely. But here in this movie, though, we have this thing where Tony refers to her as a botanist. And then we have that interaction with Pepper in the car. Your boss works for the Mandarin, you think? But Tony says you're a botanist. No figures. So. What I actually am is a biological DNA coder running a team of 40 out of a privately funded think tank. But sure, you can call me a botanist. So I like her reaction to that, that she's, you know, like Maya is speaking for herself, which I think is nice. And knows exactly who she's speaking against, too. Like, she's like, oh, yeah. Oh, what do you know? Tony was devaluing me. You don't say. What a surprise. Yeah, what a shock that is, you know. And so, of course, Maya is the closest we've come to a female villain. And the thing is, is that, you know, 
you don't have to celebrate women by making them all perfect and wonderful and you know and all of the all of the wonderful things like you can have a kick-ass female villain what we want out of these characters is not that they're necessarily all good but that they're they're interesting that they're written in an interesting way they're actual characters like actual people fully realized characters complete people right you know it doesn't matter they don't have to be all good you know but that they're interesting and that they're doing something and maya is so close to being really interesting you know and when we get that turn with killian you know where we realize that maya is actually the bad guy like i want her to be the main bad guy i want her to be killian's boss you know, I want her to be ordering him around. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't it doesn't get there. You know, she she ends up getting Pepper for Killian and Killian wants Pepper because he's got like a, a crush on her. So it's another, you know, this is an object that I need to possess kind of situation. And so I guess that's why he wants Pepper. But he's kind of using her to get to Tony. But why is he after he doesn't care about Tony? You know, we have this this central conflict, which is that, you know, Killian wants the extremist project to go out. He wants to kill the president and make the vice president president. And the vice president seems to be in on that. So he's sort of a bad guy. None of it really makes any sense. Uh, we're going to talk all about that in a little bit. Um, <laughs> but I don't understand how Pepper is being used as part of this, which, of course, brings us to Pepper, who is, you know, she's much much better yes, i think in this yeah. movie she's we're really close to getting great pepper um we have this moment where we empower her literally empower her giving her superpowers which then her boyfriend just whisks away you know with a swish of his hand you know um and i kind of hate that because first of all she's a good superhero she's I love it when she comes out. She whacks, you know, uh, Killian in the head with a pipe. She's got the Iron Man armor on her hand and she's using it. And the thing is, she kind of likes it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I understand why you don't want to give up the suits. What am I going to complain about now? Yeah, she's she's honestly a little improbably good at it. Yeah, yeah. But just based on so. what we know about Pepper and the fact that she responds with, that was really violent. Like she's a little horrified by herself. But still, we had the moment. Yeah. You Let her have it. She kind of likes it. And I love that we get a super Pepper Potts, you know, and then he just comes in and pats her on the head and it's like, that's OK, baby. I'll take care of it. I can fix this. It's fine. I can just make I can just make the fact that you burn at 5000 degrees Fahrenheit. Not a thing, you know, um, which is bizarre, you know, Um But the presumption is, I think, when we see that happen, that, you know, he just takes that power away, that that's what she wants, you know, that but what we actually see textually in that moment is that a she's good at it and b she kind of likes it. So, I mean, those are those are things that I, I think are important. And then on top of that, throughout this whole movie, essentially, she's just damseled, right? You know, we've got her kidnapped. Tony has to save her. She's stuck reaching for him on this platform that she's stuck on, you know, that's that's all over the place. She falls from that into the fire and, of course, survives it only because she has this extremist in her so she can handle being thrown into, into flames. Um, so she's essentially damseled for most of the movie, you know, um, and then we give her power for 30 seconds and then we immediately take it away. 
And I kind of hate that. There's probably some kind of overarching Pepper Potts metaphor in the fact that she is damseled through almost mm-hmm. the entire movie, fridged briefly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. shows back up with superpowers, which are then taken away off screen. Right. There's, right. there's possibly like an entire thesis mm-hmm. for women in the MCU just based on Pepper in this movie. Yeah. And it's not positive. We go through almost all the terrible things. Okay, so can you explain for people who may not understand what fridging means? Absolutely. It's not a great story, but bear (laughs) with me. There is a writer of comics named Gail Simone, and she has written quite a lot of uh, very woman-centered superhero (laughs) titles, including Batgirl, Birds of Prey, and many others. Mm -hmm. She got her start as an internet comics journalist. This used to be kind of a big deal, actually. Mm -hmm. And her big start in that was starting a website called Women in Refrigerators. Mm -hmm. This is a reference to a specific issue of Green Lantern where the Green Lantern of the time comes home, opens the refrigerator, and finds his dead, dismembered girlfriend crammed into it. Oh, Jesus. And the whole point is just to make him angry and go on a tear for revenge. And so because of Gail's work in compiling a list of what she called fridging, Mm -hmm. which is basically we're going to do something awful to a female supporting character in order to spur on anger, rage, or revenge in the male protagonist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She's not, she's not a person. She's a plot point, you know, Mm -hmm. it became known as fridging. So when we damsel her, she runs through the whole thing in a whole bunch of danger that mm-hmm. she has to be saved from. And then in the end, at least briefly, it appears that she doesn't get saved and dies. And I have to be honest with you, as annoyed as I am at constant fridging, mm-hmm. the fridge and then cheat them back out of the fridge is almost worse. Yeah, right. It's like, you know what you're doing and you can't commit to it. You lack the courage of your conviction, fridger. Exactly. Well, and, I mean, and- I don't know if it's actually worse, but it makes me think like, you guys know what you're doing. and No. You- Back off. The lack of consequence. If you're going to do something, see it through. It's the same thing that annoys me about we give her power and then we take it away immediately. We just kind of hand wave it. You know, it's like if you're going to kill Pepper, you got to kill Pepper. If you're going to give Pepper power, (laughs) say that fast five times, then you've got (laughs) to give her the power. Then you've got to let her have the power. We have this fascinating moment with her where she's staring at her hand. She's like, that was violent. I see why you like the suit. Like we have this. uh, It's it's such. Oh, it's 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 infuriating it's infuriating to have something be good and then be just taken away like that you know and i mean the thing is is that you throw her in the fire you see tony have this loss and once again tony has the loss but he doesn't really have the loss like you know we don't have consequence we're not following through on things and i think iron man is absolutely a testament to not following through on what you're doing you know um and then just deciding oh we're not going to do that we're going to reverse it it's you know bobby ewing in the shower i dreamed to the whole season kind of stuff like i hate that stuff you know if you're going to do something do it i agree it's especially unfortunate in this movie where damseling aside Mm -hmm. this is the best that the romance between pepper and tony has ever been Yes. No, this relationship is fantastic for all of the 35 seconds that we get of them actually together in a good space. But I love the way, you know, we kind of open up with Tony being so open with Mm -hmm. Pepper, the way that he talks to her in that scene. 
I'm a piping hot mess. It's been going on for a while. I haven't said anything. Nothing's been the same since New York. Oh, really? Well, I didn't notice that at all. And I love the way they talk to each other. I love the way he's so open and so completely vulnerable with her. Usually he's just a smart ass all the time. And it's the quippy back and forth dialogue, which is fun, but there's nothing real underneath it. This is Tony being completely real with her. And I love it. I love that he is acknowledging, you know, where it's coming from, that the experience of New York was just, you know, overwhelming for him and that he's, he's really carrying that around with him. And I love that he's talking to her about it yeah it's really great and between that and the action scene at the beginning where she gets the suit for a while between Mm -hmm. those two things this is you talking about show us that they're together because they work well together yeah i mean one of those is emotional work one of them is hero work but they are still like in it together it's great like it's loaded it's really got a lot going on kind of for the first time Yeah, I mean, it's the best Tony and Pepper we've had, which is not a high bar, but I mean, it's also good, you know? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's it's actually really good. It's a good, well-drawn relationship. Yeah, that's, yes. When we say that it sets a new bar for (laughs) Tony and Pepper, (laughs) that kind of belies the fact that it's actually also really good. Yes, exactly. (laughs) On its own merits, but yeah. Mm -hmm. But then it it does not, it doesn't pay off. And again, it's in this last half hour because you're right. He's not snarking like he normally would at the beginning. And then at the end, when he has ostensibly seen her die and come back to life, he goes right back to jokes. Yes. Yes. And I'm just like, what is happening right in 430 on a Friday with that script? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But it's um, it's it's it is like after seeing her die, you know, like I want him to be, you know, when she comes back to have that that moment, like he's got to be overwhelmed with everything that he's just been through, you know, and he's right back to quipping. And it's really it's it's kind of difficult. It's it's we don't land that emotional moment. The last 30 minutes of this movie. I mean, we have so much great stuff building up to it, and then it just seems to all just topple. It really, it really does. It, I think I would have much more respect for Tony Stark as a character across all these movies if we had mm-hmm. had that, instead of going right back to quipping, if he had just fallen on her sobbing a little bit. Like, just yeah. for a second. You I want to see that. He can pull himself back together. He's still Tony Stark. But give me that yes. one moment where he is just overwhelmed with the fact that she was gone, and exactly. now she's back. Yeah, exactly. And now he gets a second chance, you know, to like, so I just, I mean, I know we're in this incredibly big action moment, you know, but still like, I want, I want so much more from that. And I want, I just want one draft. I just want just somebody put me back in time. Give me one day, you know, rewriting this <laughs> Iron Man movie. I would absolutely. We don't even have that. to change tons of stuff. We can just come in no, and fix the, the end. end. Just fix the end, you know, um, you know, which brings us to the the structure of the narrative here, because, uh, you know, one of the things I do whenever I'm looking at a film is I look I start with the central narrative conflict. You know, what does the antagonist want? Um, what does the protagonist want? And how are those goals, you know, in uh, mutually exclusive? How are they in conflict? You know, and I think we've got, you know, we've got kind of we've got Aldrich Killian who wants to, you know, do this extremist thing, which is blowing people up and, and he wants wants to um to kill the president and so you know tony wants to save 
save America for, you know, goodness and, and, and mankind and whatever, you know. So we sort of have that Tony's a hero and he's a bad guy and then and that's the central conflict, which fair enough. I mean it's not it's not quite as tight as I would like to see, but it's it's functional, you know, I mean it gets us through the movie. But the thing is is that the the way that you can tell, you know, what a movie is about, like where that central narrative conflict is, is because that's the the conflict that the acts that the act structure runs along, mm-hmm. right? You know, it shows us escalating this conflict. But our act structure actually runs along this identity story, which is kind of an internal conflict you know, Tony sort of struggling with his sense of himself, but it's a very, very kind of soft internal conflict. So I found that to be just like, it was almost like these things were pulling away from each other rather than working together. Ideally, you know, in a story, you've got an external conflict and an internal conflict that supports that external conflict that runs alongside it instead of pulling away from each other. Um, But we see these things sort of pulling away from each other, especially when we've got, you know, Detective Tony Stark in the second act, you know, in Rose Hill, (laughs) Tennessee, putting all the pieces together with Harley, his little sidekick guy, right? You know, and that's almost a different movie. It's almost a different story from what we end up doing in the third act, you know. So for me, I found that this, it, it, it moves. I mean, we've got a conflict that is pushing things forward. We make it personal when Happy gets hurt, you know. So we have some of this, like, personal element to him figuring out what's going on with extremists. Um, but I don't know. It all feels really soft to me what did you think about that i feel very similarly mm-hmm. and noticing the places that they nod at killian supposedly being another opposite number to tony mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but then they don't really pay that off like he he killian undermines his own opposite numberness when he says you were the one who taught me about anonymity right yeah which would mm-hmm. be a really excellent counterpoint to a uh, hi i'm iron man Right. right. But then at the end, he's all, you know, swole and dragon tats and yelling, I am the Mandarin like anybody gives a damn. It just right. doesn't. OK, we just talked about Shane Black has written many movies that both of us enjoy very much. Yes. Mm-hmm. But this almost if I'm if I was going to be like real, I don't even want to say real snarky. Like this is my honest reaction. It feels like somebody got two thirds of the way there on a conflict between Tony and Killian that was personal yeah but then it falls to where only Killian's side is really personal because Tony doesn't know he's the bad guy through three quarters of it right you know and I mean Tony doesn't need to know but like but Killian actually I mean he has personal feelings about Tony but he's not going after Tony really I mean I guess they come and they blow up his house because he invites him (laughs) but he doesn't like he doesn't need to to do anything to Tony in order to follow through on his extremist goals. Oh so, no, it's all about his ego. Right. So we have this like personal beef, but it, it it runs kind of, you know, counter to his actual goal with extremists, which mm-hmm. has nothing to do with Tony. So it doesn't really make sense, which actually, you know, gives us a nice segue into a discussion of the villains. And I say that plural because they're they're running all over the place here. Yeah, we're just an embarrassment of, oh, let's call it riches. Let's call it riches, but that's not really what we mean, right? Um, so we have 
we have the villain misley we have we're, we're, we like open up with this stuff with the mandarin we've got this you know guy who's putting out all of these videos you know in this very bin laden-esque sort of fashion right we're trying to figure out who he is and what's going on and then of course you know at the beginning of act three we get that we get that turn where we discover that the mandarin is really just you know a cardboard stand-up that he's just there to whenever one of these guys explodes to claim it as a terrorist you know act so that um so that you know people aren't looking deeper into what's actually going on there and we have of course ben kingsley as trevor slattery who is kind of the Mandarin, but not really the Mandarin. Well, I mean, he is the Mandarin because they make the point that the Mandarin is created in a focus group. Is just a role. Right, exactly. But but I mean, yes, just a role for Slattery, but also like part of AIM as a think tank was to get a whole bunch of marketing people together and come up with the perfect terrorist threat. Right. And just build it. Good job. You nailed it. (laughs) You nailed it so well that I'd rather watch him do things than Killian. Than Ki- oh, absolutely. I think that Trevor Slattery is more interesting than than Killian, than Maya, because we do nothing that great with Maya. Um, and, of course, I, I love that Tony calls him Sir Lawrence Oblivier. Right. I that, that was really spoke to my punny little heart. Um, and, I mean, you know, I enjoy the performance. I mean, he's, he's funny. It's kind of a neat idea. Everybody that I know, like everybody who I've ever talked about this with, absolutely hates what was done with the Mandarin in this movie, <laughs> including you. You got a minute to live, Philip, with words. Just a role? The Mandarin? See, it's not real. Then how did you get here, Trevor? Um, well, I um, had a little problem with um, substances, and I ended up um, doing things, no two ways about it, in the street that a man shouldn't do. Next. And then they approached me about the role and they knew about the drugs. What did they say? They'd get you off them? Said they'd give me more. They I like I like the turn. I like that they did this thing. I think it's funny and I think, you know, he's funny and he's interesting. But ultimately, it doesn't really hold together. That's and I think why that I don't like it, it yeah. Lonnie. Yeah. They crack this Mandarin problem wide open by creating this amalgamation of every yeah. other we've had for the last 80 years yeah. in one guy. They nail the thing that I had spent a lot of time thinking about and was like, there's no way. He's yellow peril. It's a racist character. It? And then it's turned into like a subversion, which is not bad. I like those. I was genuinely yeah. surprised. Mm-hmm. But the subversion doesn't actually get us anything because the right. guy behind that guy is not very interesting. Yeah, that's why I don't like it. Yeah, no, I mean it's but I but I like this idea. The idea is great, really good idea, and I like that they've got a British guy, you know, with like this this classic, you know, very racist sort of Chinese hair, but he's got the Middle Eastern kind of facial hair, and it's and it's in this very weird sort of eclectic mix of you know of of um, different kinds of of design and and interior design that he's working with in this sort of Miami, Florida crack house place i mean it is bizarre and interesting and smart 
if you're going to cover up for a bunch of accidental explosions, that's, that's a really smart way to do it, you know, but to have him be that interesting, that fun, that funny, you know, and then essentially be nothing, you know, he's not even helping. Like if they pulled him into like help in the third act or something or something, you know, or just make Killian more interesting or make Killian more interesting. So that, so that we don't, because for me, I felt cheated, Mm -hmm. not because it wasn't just like the comic book, but I felt cheated because this version of Mandarin is chilling and terrifying and, does like yeah. subverts the concept of a yellow peril by bundling up a bunch of stuff that we find right. disturbing, exactly. which should be a commentary back on ourselves, mm-hmm. right? It, yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's it's so close to being really, really good. And then we have, of course, that stupid moment with Killian. I am the Mandarin, right? No, you're not. The Mandarin is something that you made up. It has nothing to do with anything. It's not real. The Mandarin is a marketing ploy. Mm-hmm. That he's then he's claiming the title like it means anything. I think I joked at you that it would be like the guy who branded Coke going, I am the real thing. Like that's right. supposed to be cool. <laughs> exactly. When it's just marketing. And the thing is, the whole point of the marketing is so that he can continue to do what he does in the background. Ex- yeah. Like he's the guy who slinks around in the background while the Mandarin distracts everybody, you know? Um, the Mandarin is a false flag. So I don't know. Like I. I found it, and again, like so many other things in this movie, tons of potential, really interesting, really enjoyed Ben Kingsley's performance, thought it was cool, but in the end, it's it's nothing. It's There's its nothing own there. entertaining piece, but it doesn't really support the rest of what's mm-hmm. going on. No, you know? no, it really doesn't. It I'd really like doesn't. to posit you a scenario where Maya yeah. is the mm-hmm. big villain, like she's the yeah. one who starts AIM, or she and Adrian start it together. Mm-hmm. And then she decides that she's smarter than him and does yeah. the Modoc experiment on him and he becomes <laughs> Modoc and then he kills her. There you go. And now we have an excuse for a big giant set piece at the end where. Yeah. Uh, anyway, clearly I have access to grind as far as Mandarin and Modoc go, but right. that stuff well, supports yeah. the yeah. things they're doing with Tony Stark. And this, because I'm with you, Trevor Slattery is hilarious and the Mandarin mm-hmm. is terrifying and the fact that Mm -hmm. they are the same person basically running a con on the world is a Mm -hmm. really interesting idea that just doesn't pay off enough that's where he doesn't know he shot a guy in the head he thought it was all fake oh 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 you're right right like i think that's a thing that's just sitting there like there should be a moment where like no you really shot that guy in the head well he's very inebriated he is very inebriated, but I mean, like, still, like, you know, I, I feel like there just needs to be more there, and then we need to use him, you know, like, he needs yes. to be useful, he needs to serve a purpose. Like, Maya, as another one of our, you know, villain, you know, trifecta here, um, here she is, she's, you know, she's completely in, she knows what Killian is doing, she's kidnapping Pepper, she's doing all this stuff, then Tony's tied to a bed, and suddenly she's like, I'll kill myself, you know? Yes. And why? Like, that doesn't seem like after going, once you're in that deep, like, what is it that she's killing herself? Suddenly she has this this turn of conscience. Yeah. Was you know? it, is that what it was? Was it, a, we don't even know. 
I don't even know. And then Killian just shoots her anyway. She's like, you can't do this without me. And he's like, I think I can. Boom. And that's it. Like, it is the weirdest thing. I'm really appreciative of this conversation because I have not really watched this one since the first time I saw it because I was just kind of so disappointed, you know. Uh Coming back to it, I enjoyed most of it quite a lot more this time around. Mm-hmm. But then, like, as we're talking, when we get to the end, I'm just like, but you're not capitalizing on any of the potential. Right. And that's where that's where this villain thing falls apart for me, is that if you're going to do this really clever dodge, it should matter more than it winds up mattering. Yeah. No, that's, it really should. And that's, that's the it. thing. We throw everything away. We build all this stuff, and then we just kind of throw it away. Which brings us to the sidekicks, right? <laughs> the various and sundry sidekicks. The various and sundry sidekicks, of course. Uh, we have Harley. This little kid in Tennessee, right? Who's great. I like Harley. I like the relationship that he has with Tony. I think that it's really fun. I love the fact that he can hold his own with Tony. Like one of my favorite parts is when Harley, when Tony's leaving and Harley goes up to his car and he says, You did good. So now you're just going to leave me here like my dad? Yeah. Wait, you're guilt tripping me, aren't you? I'm cold. I can tell. You know how I can tell? Because we're connected. (laughs) And I love that moment with Tony because Tony's not having any of it. He's like, I'm not going to buy this guilt trip bullshit, you know? And Harley's just, you know, fluttering his eyes at him and doing everything. I mean, I love the way that Harley um, deals with Tony. I love the way Tony treats Harley as an equal. You know, he doesn't talk down to him because he's a kid, you know? Um, there's really Oh, that's a take. Yeah, I don't think that he does. I don't think he talks down to that's him. That's not the take that that's I have for Tony this relationship. That's how Tony talks to everybody. I mean... But that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Not where I go with Harley, what but I, I mean, it? I like Harley. Yeah. It's not where I go with Tony and mm-hmm. Harley. But well, what did you think about Tony and Harley? I think that Tony is kind of awful yeah. to this child. And again, I've just recently rewatched Spider-Man Homecoming. And now I see that ruining children <laughs> is Tony's like side <laughs> hobby. But Harley can take it. Harley gives as good as he gets. Harley's tough. I like Harley. I, I like the relationship. Okay, I like Harley a lot, and I agree with you that Harley is tough, and I'm trying to think of a way that I can point out what I think, how I read that whole interaction in a way that isn't just going to turn this into a giant downer. No, it's all right. <laughs> well, I mean, okay, he's been abandoned once before by his father. Yes. Mm-hmm. He doesn't recognize Tony Stark at first, which I think is weird. Right, because he knows Iron Man. Right. Yeah. But once he realizes who he is, he's like, oh, great, another one of these. And I don't expect Tony to be good at that. Mm -hmm. But Tony also lost his parents unexpectedly. And I just have some emotion, you moral monster, (laughs) you know, for this kid. And I think that the reason they don't is because the script doesn't care about him either. Yeah, no, the script doesn't. I mean, we, we jettison Harley right quick. Like once he's, you know, served his purpose by reminding Tony that he's a mechanic so that Tony can have the fastest (laughs) internal arc of any, like boom, (laughs) all of a sudden, boom, he's, he's gone. I'll be darned. You're right. To Home Depot. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But, but, um, I do like, Something you and I have talked about before where you wish Harley would have been more important to the final climax, yeah. whatever that looked like. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I agree with that. Um, it's now become kind of a trope, mostly because of the uh, superhero TV shows. Mm -hmm. uh, but you had it in the comic books before also with like Oracle working with uh, with Batman mm -hmm. and, and all the many Robins and whatnot that you have a person in the chair. Yeah. I mean, this is a Spider-Man homecoming thing where, you know, uh, uh, please let me be your guy in the chair. Right. And it would have been really cool if as part of this putting different facets of himself together into a better Tony Stark slash Iron mm -hmm. Man. If one of those things was like, hey, kiddo, you're tagged in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Maybe instead of Jarvis. Instead of Jarvis. Or, well, what I would have liked to have seen with Harley. You know, Harley's got this um, great mechanical mind, which I think is great. Like yeah. he's got that in, in common with Tony. But what I would have liked to have seen is that it was Tony would see something in Harley that he doesn't have. That Harley has an ability to read people. That Harley has an ability to, to be empathetic to the point where he can understand where other people are coming from. So that while he's helping Tony, but I mean, Tony's got the earpiece. He's talking to Jarvis. I wanted Harley to be in on that and, and like have an insight into the people, into Killian, into Maya, That's something yeah. so that, so that we could see in this kid that he has a thing that Tony doesn't have. And when Tony uses that ability, you know, if he would use that ability, have, enough empathy that he could understand where somebody else was going to go with something that he could see what somebody was going to do before they did it. If we'd built that in and had hardly sort of give that to Tony, sort of model that behavior for Tony and Tony use that modeling in the third act, it would have pulled that together. But as it is, it's like we dump Harley until the end. Harley walks in and he's got this great, you know, um, this great lab set up for him, which is which is nice. You know, and of course, another a new Dora, you know, limited edition watch for his sister, which was very nice. Um, but oh, is Tony Stark fixing interpersonal problems with money and flash? Yes. I'm shocked. No, yes, he is. Absolutely. Um, and I'm sure the mother who's working three jobs to support the kid is like, oh, great. Now he's got that much more to use up electricity while he's out here. But um... <laughs> spoken like a mother, spoken like a single teenagers. mom. Yeah, let me tell you that. Yes. I, tell you, I hope that he got the mother like a good, nice, you know, well-paying job to support all of the gadgets that this kid is going to need. But um but anyway, so, you know, we sort of jettison Harley as soon as he reminds Tony that he's a mechanic and we don't really deal with him again. And then we move into act three where Rhodey comes in as our sidekick. And so we can talk again about, you know, we've talked a lot about women. Let's talk a little bit about people of color. We have yeah. Rhodey. I'm trying to, is there anybody else i don't think that we see any other people of color so that's another thing the one person of color that we have is roadie who is the best friend who is the sidekick he is there you know helping tony do his thing doesn't really have anything of his own going on he's the iron patriot but we don't really deal with that very much um you know in fact it's a joke it is often yeah you know yeah yeah. So I, one thing I do like is that, you know, when they're on the oil rig, right, um, Rhodey is there and there's a moment, just a hot moment, and you can miss it if you blink, where Rhodey's in charge. Put your gun up. Yep. What do I do? Stay on my six, cover high and don't shoot six. me in the back. High, back, all right. See that? Nailed it. Yeah, you really killed the glass. Like I was aiming for the bulb? You can't hit a bulb at this distance. 
And so I really like that we have Rhodey's incredible capability in that moment, that we have Tony following Rhodey's lead in that moment, um, allowing for Rhodey's, you know, combat experience and capability to take over in this particular scenario. I love all of that. And I think that it's great. Rhodey's the one who actually saves the president. You know, which is a nice moment for him, you know. Um, but in the end, he's just kind of there supporting Tony. We don't, he doesn't really have his own thing. He's the one who has to present the terrible choice, which, of course, we we flake out on, you know. Yeah, this, it's no choice at all. No choice at all. Because they're both right there. Exactly. We can, we can save either the president or Pepper, but not both. Well, no, actually, we can save both, and we do, you know. Um, and when you give a terrible choice, choice to somebody again if you don't make them make that choice then don't do it then don't present yeah what good is it again no consequences for tony stark um and and so i find that a little bit frustrating but like rhodey has so much potential you know there's you can Mm -hmm. do things with this character you can make him more interesting you can give him his own life his own personal stakes his own things that are happening Rhodey is two things he's his job and he's Tony's buddy you know um so we don't really give him anything to do he doesn't present you know anything for for Tony personally he's just kind of there while he's useful and then we have him hug an Iron Man suit and run off you know um and then that's it so I don't know. Like I, I found that really disappointing too. Is I like Don Cheadle. I like Don Cheadle a lot. I've seen him do really interesting things in a lot of movies. I know he can do it. Let's give him something. If you're going to have him there, give him something. Well, you may recall that you uh, cast plenty of shade my way when I said my favorite part from Iron Man 2 was the buddy cop movie we didn't get. Yes. <laughs> And I will just renew that for this purposes. Because when they do that thing, Mm -hmm. it's great. It's really entertaining. Even when they do it kind of emotionally, which you get a little bit at the bar at the beginning. A little bit. For Mm -hmm. one of Tony's panic attacks. Yeah. It doesn't really pay off. I'd like to see Rhodey be more of an emotional part of Tony's life, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, But yeah, I, I just, I would really like to see... Iron Men, mm-hmm. that's just those two both being awesome in very different ways that involve armors yeah. and being funny together, like being best friends who are caught up in this. Right. Well, we certainly didn't plan this, did we? And Rhodey you know? having a life of some sort. Like, do we know anything yeah. about him? Does he have, I don't know, a girlfriend? Does he have a boyfriend? God forbid, right? Let's let's have ourselves right. some gay characters in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Like, you know, do we know anything about Rhodey other than that he's, you know, he's a kick-ass soldier guy, you know, and he's Tony's best friend. Like, there's there's nope. nothing else to it. That's it. You know, yeah. we don't know anything about Pepper either. We don't know if she's, we don't know her, like, her life or family. I mean, I understand that this is Iron Man. This is Tony's movie, right? But let's fill out these characters a little bit. Let's give them a little something, you know? And, and you know, Rhodey, like, we, we know more about Harley than we know about Rhodey. Oh, that's true. You know? Yikes. Yeah. Three movies and we know more about yeah. Harley. Gracious. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that's something we need to look at. Listen, it's – the MCU is capable of turning the dial up on secondary characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, It's really startling when you think about it that this hasn't been done for Rhodey because that's basically why we have Loki. Right. (laughs) 
Um, and to a lesser extent, Warriors 3 mm-hmm. with Sif. Mm-hmm. We, we will get um, less so the Commandos, but definitely Bucky yeah. in First Avenger. And, oh my gosh, Bucky all over again yeah. soon. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's, it is a thing that they can do. It is s- sort of weird that it never happens in three whole movies with Rhodey. Three whole movies with Rhodey. And we never do anything interesting with him. And the fact that he's our only person of color, like, you know, that also makes it really feel dismissive. Oh, my gosh. They're going to do a better job with Sam Wilson. Oh, Sam Wilson is fantastic. They he's so great. great. I love him so much. When we get to that, yeah. that's going to be so fun to talk about. Yeah, but they do so much more. We know more about Sam in the first 15 minutes. Wow, we, we do really do. Oh. Yeah. And it's a, Brody, it's a we hardly knew you. It's a disappointment, I have to say, especially because I really like Don Cheadle, you know? And when you yeah, give, when I really you give like that Don guy Cheadle. stuff to do, he does it. He brings it home. So, I don't know. So, in the end... Iron Man 3, I love so much of it. And in some ways, it's my favorite Iron Man movie. Like in some ways that deep vulnerability for for Tony, the way that they pull this into an identity three beat that actually progresses through these three movies. There's so much cool stuff going on in this movie. And then there's so much You can really see Shane Black's ethos that he talked about, how this needs to be a little bit different. It needs to feel like something of an ending, like... You can see that go through so mm-hmm. much of this movie. Yeah. And that's the stuff that really works and really sings and I really, really like. And then it all falls apart. Like the Shane Black stuff in here, the Harley stuff with uh, Tony, that is pure Shane Black. I can see his fingerprints all over <laughs> that, you know. And the voiceover, of course, which is not my favorite thing. Shane Black does it pretty well. But I, I hate voiceover just in general. And that's a whole other discussion <laughs> that I will do on a different podcast some other day. Um, but I think in the end, it feels like we have all this really great stuff happening. And then we don't see any of it through. We don't follow through on consequence. We've got so many different elements kind of coming in here. It feels like you gave a kid three jigsaw puzzles, mixed all the pieces together. The kid glued them all together and made a billion dollars. You know, <laughs> and that's all it that's, is. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know, those jokes about Picasso being actually a third grader. Yeah. What if they weren't jokes? Right. Exactly. Exactly. He's, he's the Mandarin of art, you know, um, <laughs> fine art, but just an amalgam of pieces. So, I mean, it does, it does feel like there was so much potential. There's so much good stuff in this movie. And then it all like fumbles apart, not unlike all the Iron Man suits at the end. <laughs> you know, it just Ooh. falls apart like that. So Ooh, another metaphor. There I you like go. that. No, I'm, I'm, I'm great with the metaphors. I'll pull them all out. Um, <laughs> all right. So tell me, Josh. Okay. So we have to end on a high note. Yes, absolutely. What was your favorite? Tell part? me about your favorite. Oh, part, I was going to make you tell me first. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> so honestly, I think that it's Pepper in the suit Mm -hmm. as they are saving each other and passing that one suit back and forth. I got you. I got you first. She's empowered. They really both feel very in sync as a couple. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's the most I've ever liked them together in an action scene because we had the most I've ever liked them as an actual couple. Right. You know, before when they're actually having that like emotional connection and he's being vulnerable and she's there to help. And <laughs> and I loved all that. But seeing them like actually in action together is 
is my favorite part. Yeah. It, it's why I honestly expected some version of rescue by the end of the movie. That would have because been Because she looked great in Heartbreaker. I would have loved that. I See, I didn't have the, the comic book context to even think to expect that. But yeah, if I had known about that, I would have been even more disappointed by this movie than I already was. <laughs> I mean, okay, you've, you and I have talked a little bit about how uh, expectations are a huge part yes. of your enjoyment mm-hmm. you know, of a movie. And, and that most of the time, me knowing all this stuff does not undermine my enjoyment. Yeah. Because most of the time I am able to appreciate the distillation that happens, you know, Mm -hmm. but there are some times Mm -hmm. and there, you know, there's a couple of them in this movie, but there's some times when I'm just like, guys, damn, I know somebody has done that better. Right. You know, (laughs) and, and, and again, that scene of she saves him, he saves her. Mm-hmm. she's very capable in the suit unexpectedly. It's just, right. I really, she throws herself over him when the ceiling starts to come in and she throws herself over him. She thinks fast. She knows how to make the suit work, you know? Yeah. She saves Maya afterwards. Yeah. I mean, Pepper is great in that moment mm-hmm. and Tony is great with and because of Pepper. Yeah. And you know, it's just, it's the working together that you you talk about. Yep. Like, that's how you show that people are that's actually how, romantically linked. They worked really well together. That's how you build any Man. relationship, but especially a romantic relationship. Absolutely. So for me, that's, that's my favorite part. It's kind of a big, sexy action set piece mm-hmm. where saving lives is more important than blowing things up yes. for most of it. Mm-hmm. And in the process of that, Pepper's the one who does really, you know, the bulk of the saving yeah. and that's again i had rescue in the back of my head and i was like i like where this is headed i like continue that too. friends i like that too yeah. and my favorite part is also related to that my favorite part is when tony's talking to pepper about his ptsd when he's being so open and so vulnerable with her you experience things and then they're over and you still can't explain them gods aliens other dimensions i'm, I'm just a man in a can the only reason I haven't cracked up is probably because you moved in, which is great. I love you. I'm lucky. But honey, I can't sleep. That, honestly, like, there's so much to love in this movie, you know? But as far as, like, a moment, you know, just one moment in the movie, I was so delighted by that, you know, because they they'd had such a difficult time, you know, making these characters work. Mm -hmm. you know, together. And it was, I loved that Tony was so open and so vulnerable with her, which is something that he hadn't been before. He's always, you know, so super cool and so like quippy. And then for him to just completely open up to her, I really love that. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. I agree. It's, um, yeah, between those two scenes, um, I kind of want to see the buddy cop movie with Rhodey. I'd also kind of like to see the buddy cop movie with Pepper. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't know what they're doing in it, (laughs) (laughs) but I want them doing it together and being awesome at it. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to see Pepper come into her own power. And not have it waved away during the credits. But we're supposed to be ending on a high note. Right. Sorry. (laughs) No, I think it's really telling that three movies long and we have spent lots of time talking about how great Pepper could be. Yeah. And that in this movie where there is legitimately a bunch of stuff that we both really enjoy – we both zeroed in on different aspects of Pepper and Tony being awesome together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It feels like, un- again, untapped potential, not in the way that we've talked about with this movie, but just broadly. Yeah. Like, how interesting is that thing? Mm-hmm. I think very. Yeah. So, could be real yeah. good. 
Well, thanks for joining us for this episode of Listen Up A-Holes. We'll be back next time with our discussion of Agent Carter, episodes one through four. We're going to be moving through the TV shows at a pretty good clip, but there will be two weeks between episodes of Listen Up A-Holes, so you should be able to keep up. Yes, and if you enjoyed this conversation, would like to join in, come find us on Twitter. I am at Lonnie Diane Rich, and Joshua is at Joshua Unruh, and the hashtag is Listen Up A-Holes. Both Pulp Diction Productions and Chipperish Media are entirely supported by listeners like you, and that's why you're our heroes. So show your support by visiting our Patreon pages or leaving a great review on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for more people to find us and join in in the conversation. Yes, and the links to the Apple Podcasts and both our Patreon pages are easy to find right there in your show notes. Until next time, a cheap trick and a cheesy one-liner should be the name of our autobiography. Autobiography.